0: Good morning, everyone. Happy Friday. It is hot, hot, hot across the country, and uh, we have some fire-dropping people here today. We've got Chris Ortega from Amasis, and we have Glenn Snyder from Global Growth. Welcome, gentlemen. What's hey, up? Tom, great to be here. All right, today we've got an awesome topic. Something we talk a lot of, a little bit about, you know, we we kind of nudge in every now and then and talk about special projects that FPNA can lead and participate in. And today we want to go deep on that on that topic. Normally we're kind of covering core aspects of FPNA, but today we want to jump in and see where we can send the special ops teams, do the things that are really going to make a big impact to the business and talk about you know, what benefits you get out of doing that, what experiences you can get out of doing that, some risks associated with doing that and how to how to account for them and plan for them. Um, and uh, and and you know, where else can you go? Like how, how as an FPNA person can you go out into the business and really try and um, provide that, that superpower that that FPNA leaders have. So um, Chris, I'd love to start with you. What are some of the special projects or special ops uh, projects you've, you've tackled or had your team tackled before?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I'm really excited about this topic because I think it's so important for us to realize that uh, FP&A and accounting and finance don't go the traditional route, right? So like my first project won't be going to the sales, won't be going to the marketing. I want to change it up and mix it up. I think the first place that uh, a really special ops FPNA project that you can go work with is directly get aligned with your HR and your people management, right? The people aspect of our businesses are the most important. And if you want to find a business partner inside the organization that shares a lot of the collaboration, communication, a lot of the frustrations, they're the blunt of everything coming to the business go talk to HR. So one of the great projects that I got to work on that is really like outside of the box when it comes to FP&A, accounting and financing, you wouldn't expect us to be leading this, was I had the opportunity in my career to completely revamp a human capital strategy, right? A human capital strategy is basically we we in accounting, financing, FP&A, we were a small team, We were the legal people, we were the finance people, we were the accounting people, we were the risk people, we were the benefits people, we were the... It was four people on the team and we wore all these different hats. We were like the office manager Uh, and even sometimes I would get like uh, lunch and, and, and snacks for clients or for our employees. So this project that we got to work on was a human capital strategy. And it basically was a project management role that we took upon to guide our organizations, our teams, our functional roles, right? Getting functional roles aligned, getting functional roles to know what their career progression could possibly be in the role that they're in, getting those roles aligned to compensation, right? Like we did a complete valuation of our compensation models. Like some people were on variable compensation, some people were on bonuses, some people were on SPIFs. They were all across the board and ultimately, We did all of this human capital planning, benefits, compensation, titles, job descriptions, right? This may sound crazy, but we had, like, everybody had their own job description. Like, you had a customer success manager that was saying they were a, you know, it was just all across the board. So, we standardized our roles. We standardized our functional responsibilities. We we, we level set people's compensation to get a more consistent structure about what the role that they were doing But all of this was driving towards the focus of our business, which were the the strong KPIs around driving revenue, increasing, uh, decreasing costs, making sure we're more efficient and optimized and building collaboration inside the business. So we marshaled this entire effort. Right. And let me just be transparent. Right. It was a 250, 300 employee organization. Right. There's no way that that would have scaled if I was trying to do this in an 8,000, 10,000 uh, person organization or team that was a part of, but that those what we brought to the business was this alignment and this connective uh, collaboration to all the strategies that we were talking about as a leadership team, cascading it all the way down. And one way we were able to do that is we didn't have knowledge experts in benefits management, compensation management we leverage great partners. So where we were weak, when it came around benefits and how do we get the best benefit packages? How do we making sure we get the best insurance rate? How are we finding little perks and options for our employees to have? We said, hey, we're not knowledgeable in this. So we got a great partner to help us in that process. So it gave us the horsepower. It gave us the expertise. And it also gave us the way to know like, we're making sure like we're raising our hands saying we're weak in this area but we're going to find a partner that's strong. And that was, that was a transformative uh, aspect of our business. It, it literally transformed that business that um, eventually was acquired uh, well after that I left. One of the key highlights from the CFO and the leadership team that they shared with me is like, Chris, there's no way we would have been at the point of this acquisition or know our business well enough to align our functional roles, to hire the talent, to compensate them and to have them focused in our business, which led to a ultimate acquisition for them there's no way we could have done that if we didn't have this human capital strategy so a little bit outside the box and some people may be like curse that's like that's not in my job description to go work with hr to develop a human capital uh, planning and roadmap but as a special loss project and really really connecting to the people in the business it was a tremendous project to work on
0: yeah, Chris, we, we've talked a lot on uh, on FPNA Fridays before about you know finding the the time in the business to do certain things, and it sounds like that was a business that had grown probably pretty quickly. Things had gotten messy, and that was the time to go and level set the organization in order to scale that next set of growth, and and so that's why those types of projects are so important at those moments in time, right? Figure out what the special ops project is. That's most important to the business at the time. And, and to, to scale after that, you needed that, that framework, that structure, that level set that, that existed after you did that, that work.
1: Most definitely. Yeah, it was, it was that point. And we were 250 then, and then we catapulted to about 300, 400 people in like two years. Like it was rocket ship. And it was high level of growth. But it was that scale that we needed to, to make sure we maximize the investment that we were getting to maximize the the go-to-market strategy that we were having, it was a fundamental block amongst a lot of dominoes that needed to fall to get ultimately to that business where it was acquired by a competitor. And without that fundamental legwork, there's no way that business would have been at the position it was to get acquired. And, uh, some people got some nice paydays out of that.
0: <laughs> well, that always helps. Right. So Glenn, what, what have you seen? You, you know, you've been in fp a for, uh, for a long time. Uh, I'm not trying to date you there. I'm just trying to give everyone your experience. What are some of the the amazing special ops projects that you've seen and tackled and, and maybe cherry pick a couple of great ones for us?
2: Well, it's really covered, the full spectrum. I've done a lot of the stuff that Chris talked about with HR. I mean, because HR is such a valuable partner, but one of the things that, and I'm going to take a little step back and kind of think big picture here for a second, one thing that I always like to do when it comes to putting together your goals for the next year is with my fp and teams, I like to talk about, look, you got your fundamental things you need to get done, but what are the projects you want to do? Where are the other special things that are above and beyond outside of the or norm, normal realm of FPNA that you want to be working on? And it usually goes with, you know, if you have a finance business partner that works with HR, it's going to be a project with HR. If they work with sales, it'd be a project with sales, those types of things. But I always ask for people to be thinking about where, do the, where does the business need to improve? And one thing that FPNA can do is it brings a discipline and a certain skill set to projects that many businesses don't have and that is where the value is that's where it you could say what chris described there was outside of the realm of FP&A. and i would say why what i don't think that anything really should be outside the realm of fpna because we're analysts we we analyze information we think through processes we look at where where should we be where are we today and how do we help get there so all of that to me is all within the scope of fpna but i'll talk to you about a little thing that i did uh, early in my career i was at franklin templeton and i was working uh, i was very i was actually working in the portfolio management and trading group which represented about 65 percent of their global revenue and one of the things that i saw was that the business itself just wasn't working very efficiently that you had independent groups that were managing mutual funds in their own personal strategies of how they were set up based on their brand and they would go out and they would do their research and then based on that research they'd make their portfolio decisions on what to buy what to sell within the mutual fund but what i found was many of these different groups were calling on the same companies because they were investing they had, there had some overlaps in how they invested so for example kukman bank is the largest bank in korea the global equity team invested in kukman bank the emerging markets team invested in kukman bank and the local team that was based that was invested purely in korea was investing in K- kukman bank and one thing that I saw by sitting in, a, in an fp role, I'm able to see across the entire organization, I was like, wait a second. First of all, you have a local team in Korea that's gonna get the data faster and it, it has nothing to do, when you talk about researching, just gathering information, that has nothing to do with proprietary styles of managing funds. And what we ended up doing was looking at a project to say, wait, instead of having people flying all over the world to meet with the same company, why don't they coordinate share information that is publicly available because they have to deal with in public information. This way, everyone's getting the data faster and it's cheaper, and then they can also, they can leverage the questions and information that the other teams are asking. And what ended up happening was, is within one year of us instituting these shared research calls, we ended up reducing the overall cost to the shareholder of the mutual fund and the company we improved the performance because the information was flowing in a much more timely manner and the overall organization was running more efficiently. So, does that have anything to do with FPNA? Eh, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> but you can't go over and say, look, FPNA's job is to make the company more profitable, more efficient, more effective in whatever it's doing. Just like what Chris was talking about with HR. And so here was a here was a case that in FPNA saw this opportunity because you have a different view than others do in the company you see across divisions across portfolios across products whatever it happens to be across countries and you can say wait a second i see an opportunity here and one thing that it takes though it takes the courage to go over and say i think we could do better here and i want to be a part of that
0: i i, I love that uh, we were actually talking uh this week internally about and uh, FPNA and you know Gartner talking about XPNA extended planning and analysis, which is planning analysis outside the office of the CFO. And we were all like, isn't that just good FPNA? Right? Like isn't isn't that just like, you know, we we understand we talk about XPNA and and we we know that that world, but at the same time it is it's just different types of data, right? It's operational data versus financial data and trying to marry the two up. Um, but uh, really, really interesting there. What, what other kind of one thing that I've seen FP&A teams get really involved in is pricing, uh, especially in, you know, fast growing software companies, but it's also an area where FP&A teams don't often have the most skills, right? Like, Yes, they can do a lot of the analysis, but but building pricing models and building pricing structures is a very sensitive topic for for those involved. Specifically, the salespeople that have to go and pitch and message it. Have have either of you been involved in pricing projects? I am expecting two yeses. <laughs>
2: Yep. Yeah. Many companies I've done pricing.
0: Yeah. So yeah. Let, let's talk about it. Cause it's, it's one that I think every FP&A person will tackle at some point. Um, so what do you, what do you both have seen from how do you go and tackle it and what are the big risk areas around, you know, reviewing pricing models and coming up with new pricing models and maybe Chris, I'll start with you.
1: Oh, uh Rowan, what a great topic to talk about. Right. Talking about how you're moving from, like, like here at Amarsis, right, we we have gone through so many different changes of product packaging to a legacy pricing where we're getting people on committed contracts from uses-based contracts. That's step number one. Then getting them on product-based packaging where we went from, you know, offering all these different solutions to say, hey, you get our core product with all these extras to saying, nope. You get Essentials, you get Advanced, you get Max AI, right, to getting the packages. Now we're in a phase right now where we're going to, uh, through the acquisition we're going to, to getting to new product and patching that SAP wants us to have. So that, I mean, just seeing the different stages around that where there's been changes. And to me, it's always about, like, what are you trying to go to market with, right? And I think uh, in a lot of the software companies I've been at, We've changed our go-to-market strategy so many different times. Like the company I was, the software company I was at before, which was recently was 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 acquired. That I was mentioning in my uh, FPNA special ops example, it was the same thing. It was you know we were going out there. We had people. We had customers that were uh, the same level of customers paying three thousand dollars, and we had that same level of customer paying like twenty five thousand dollars, and then we had a customer, smaller customer that was we were all across the board, right? And the thing that we had to do was really, really focus on the strategy. And again, you, you hit the nail right on the head, Rowan. We got into the analytics. We were running the numbers. We looked at customer lifetime value. We looked at you know the average CAC that was coming in from these customers. We looked at how much upsell, cross-sells we were getting from different markets. We were slicing and dicing all that data, but none of that was, was valuable until we said, okay, what are we going to market with? Right. Like, let's get a line on the strategy first. Like, are we, do we want to be the, uh, the, the, we'll fit it. We'll you know, any deal, do we want to be the customer to say, Oh yeah, we'll give you anything that you need. Or do we want to go in and say, here are the lanes that you can operate in here, are the products and the packaging that we're giving with it. Here's the pricing you're going to have. And based on your, you know, contact size or based on your revenue size or your employee size, that's how we'll determine what price point you're going to be at. So really we had to get alignment and work with the sales, the marketing, the operations and and that group to really get aligned on what it was our go to market strategy. So I think first start there. First start on significantly understanding the go to market strategy, right? And then now you can bring in the data to inform, hey, you know, our essential package should be at a $2,500 or less MRR. Here's the ideal customer profile. Here's the industries that they're in. Here's the AEs that we're going to sign to focus on that market, right? Here's the compensation and commission structures that'll go along with that. Here's the potential value that we'll bring to the business and looking at the total addressable market for those particular areas, right? So once we got on that, like once we got aligned on the strategy, how we're going to go to market, how we're going to position, what do we want our value proposition from a selling perspective to be in the commercial conversations once we got all that and and believe you me that took a lot of time you're getting sales marketing finance strategy operations who's ultimately going to be the ones executing and fulfilling these things once we got all that legwork done we were off the ground running And that's where fpna we were able to accelerate the conversations L- accelerate the pocket packaging and ultimately what that led to is like it gave us more uniform to know like Here's what a platinum customer is, here's what a gold, a silver, a bronze is, here's what that customer looks like, here's what that market is in terms of revenue that it's bringing, here's the upsell cross-sells that we can get from that, and here's the marketing strategies that we need to have positioned towards that. So for me, that pricing conversation is less about the numbers and more about how do we want to go to market, that alignment and that strategy, then you can get into the quantitative aspect of it. So Uh, You know, in three different software companies that has always been the natural transition and me learning now on the SAP side with the acquisition is seeing how they do stuff and like seeing how they do it in different markets and how they spread things out. It's it's opening my eyes to a completely different pricing model. But for me, that's that's the kind of the framework that I've used in uh, the three software companies I've been a part of.
0: Yeah, I I have a funny story about uh, a smaller company I worked at. um, And to your point around, it's about the what's your go to market position. Um, You know, our pricing model was fine. It it worked, people understood it, it wasn't overly complex, we could upsell, we could manage everything. And and so everyone liked the pricing model. But we we felt we weren't getting the, uh, you know, our dues in the in the market. And we there was a perception about us. So we just doubled the prices and guess what customers just paid more and they actually treated us more seriously. Um, and it was just a perception issue that, you know, our price, we looked cheap and therefore the product didn't show off well to them. And, and so just by simply doubling the prices, right? Pricing models, everything like there's also a way of not over complicating pricing sometimes, which is you don't need to have all these fancy levers if the levers are actually working, it might just be the price point, and and that actually changes the trajectory of the conversation. Glenn, what have you seen? And I'm sure you've done pricing models in you know in banks and in in uh, you know at digital realty, your last company, which was uh, leasing and things like that. What what have you seen from pricing perspectives?
2: Actually, one of the biggest pricing models that I was working on was actually Charles Schwab, and Rowan, what you were talking about was the exact issue. It was the first thing you have to get to is what do you, who do you want to be in the market? What are you trying to do? Do you want to be the, you know, the, the, the low price leader to say, Hey, look, we're the cheap one, just, you know, where, where you have more transactional type volume or do you want to be the high-end service that we're going to charge more for the same thing but we're going to be higher touch what is your model that you really want to do and so uh you know that's the first thing that you have to figure out and then there is some number crunching that gets involved but what you really have to be looking at is consumer behavior or you know or if it's if you're going out to a retail market at least consumer behavior Uh, but what how are your how are the customer is going to be behaving based on the pricing so you need to go and say wait a second if we raise our prices here do we lose business where is that if you think back to your economics classes in you know in college very simple supply and demand charts you raise prices your, your demand is going to go down, but it's about maximizing that box that is your profit, if that's what you're going for. By the way, sometimes you wanna go over and you don't necessarily focus on pricing driving profit, you know, driving or, or maximizing profit. Sometimes you wanna change your pricing to maximize market share, which means you might be taking a loss. And so there are different strategies about what you really wanna get out of your pricing and out of the market. So. Chris was absolutely right. That's the first thing you got to understand. But then you have to dive into different types of numbers, which is more about how do consumers behave? Where's the market? Where's your competition? How do you want to position yourself? And it's really more about the strategy and how all those different pieces fit together than saying hey look here's the actual price because at the end of the day what you're going to do is you're going to have your model that's going to say at this price we think we're going to have this amount of volume which tells us here's the impact on the financial statements you know here's the profitability here's the revenue you're generating here's the growth potential those types of things but you first have to figure out who do you want to be in that market what is the brand all about and how do you want to position it and of course as you get bigger and bigger and bigger and i think back to my days at places like visa where they had a dominant market share pricing was less important because if visa increased their price by two percent well they had more than 50 percent of the global market share at the time in in electronic payments Okay, they can do that. But you have to be very careful at that time about raising prices, because then you get into other types of laws that are around monopolistic behaviors and how you price. And so all of these different factors come into play, but it's really about understanding where you are, why you want to change your prices, what you want to do, and what's the ultimate outcome.
0: And, and so as we go and start that, right, where, we've all decided, someone says, CEO says, we need to look at pricing. And he points at the CFO and says, you go lead that project. Who does the CFO, obviously turns to FP&A, right? Cause it's a future forward looking thing. Um, but who else do you need to bring into the room and at what points?
2: So if I could jump in here. So the first thing that you, even if the CFO comes to me and says, hey, look, we gotta go and look at pricing. The first thing you got to ask is why, what are you trying to get out of it so you understand? <laughs> it's, yes, right. But then you want to go over it and you want to talk to people in product. You want to talk to people in sales. You want to talk to people in marketing. And if you have a strategy group, you need someone there too, because you're going to need information on that external market. Where are the competitors? You need to understand how are you positioning yourself against your, your competitors? So really it's not, FPNA a cannot do a pricing exercise by itself, because if you try and do it by yourself, you're gonna miss a whole bunch of things that just FPNA is oftentimes just not exposed to. Well, you're
0: gonna do it so twice, just- that's for sure, because you're gonna go and do it, you're gonna do it on your own, and then you're gonna present to a few people, and they're gonna tell you that there's no way that's gonna happen, right?
1: Well, I would dude
2: sometimes you might not be doing it twice you do it once they look at and say no you completely missed the mark and we're not having you do this anymore and they do it without you the whole thing is is that you want to be a part of the discussion but being a part of it you have to recognize you have to be part of a broader team and that's where you have to have people understand the external market Understand the clients you might have people from client service if they are interacting with clients. That's way they know hey How are clients complaining about our pricing? What are other factors that we need to bring in? So you got to have that real 360 view here to make sure that you have someone representing all the different areas that are going to be impacted by a price change
1: Yeah, I would agree if I can chime in on that with Glenn you knock it out the park totally right right and I think like when I think about a pricing conversation and that being brought up that's a that's a, a new chapter being opened in that business, right? At least from my vantage point. Every time that I've been a part of a revamping of pricing, it's been a milestone in where the business is going, right? Sometimes in the SaaS-based business, you go, you're just getting, uh, you know, you're setting everything up and you're like, $99 a user per month, put it on the credit card, right? And then it's just like, it goes from that way to like, okay, we need to get a little bit more sophisticated then it goes to like war packages driven right and then it goes you as you escalate in the business those have always been like checkpoints that i've seen in least you know high growth entrepreneurial startup kind of companies is that's always been hey we're 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 going to another growth we're starting a new chapter in the business right back to like who you need involved in the conversation pricing conversations are like Imagine a lake, and you throw a boulder in the lake, and all the waves that come through that lake, price is going to affect everybody in the organization: HR, legal, uh, sales, marketing, operations. It, it, it's a it's a it's a it's a big monumental atomic thing that you got to make sure you have alignment on. That gets back to my point earlier: is like you got to spend the time on alignment. And I would tell people like. Seriously, being in those conversations, it's going to take a lot of time to get that. Or if you're in a fast paced organization and it's just you, the chief revenue officer, the marketing, the operations person, legal, and you guys all get in a room and like, look, let's get this thing together first. Let's get a line on all this. Make sure we're all on moving in the same directions because that's how you run faster. So to me, like when you need the people in that conversation, it's 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 every touch point in the organization. Because you're going to be driving more money, you're going to be getting more cash, you're going to have opportunities to, you know, people want to know is like, hey, the first thing on the sales side is going to say, if you increase the price, what's that going to do to my commissions? The most important question you need to answer in that and know in every aspect of the business is what's in it for me. I think we talked about that earlier, right? You got to know what's in it for me. And to, to Glenn's point, what's in it for the organization? Like, what are we trying to do? Are we just trying to get more money? Are we trying to... You know, reposition ourselves. Are we trying to seem like we're more enterprise and not mid market? Like it's really answering a lot of those questions before you even dive into the numbers. Because if you go the number approach first, which I've learned, it it, you're gonna nobody, it's gonna be wrong. If you go to a pricing conversation and your first decision and first instinct is go look at the numbers, you, you you you're gonna you're gonna be so inefficient and you're gonna lose so much time already. Go to the people, go to getting the strategy, go to getting the alignment first.
0: Yeah, and and from that perspective, people tend to go to the numbers first because they want to feel informed as they go into that strategy conversation. But what you end up doing is leading the witness, right? Or you come in with a hypothesis that is like, oh, now I've got a frame of reference that my analysis wanted me to go here. But everyone's telling me something different. I just wasted some time. So both what Chris and Glenn are saying, which is step back and actually wait for the strategy conversation before you go and do that. And that's it gives you much more efficiency because you can then ask the right questions of the data versus just doing analysis for for fun, right? Like, you know, everyone does love spreadsheets and does love doing analysis for fun. I think we all have been there where it's like, oh, let me go and find the answer to this question. I'd love to dig into this for a few hours and get on my big monitor and, and play around with numbers, but you can't do that in a pricing conversation because you're just wasting time. What, um, I think, you know, we've, we've parked a pricing there. I think, um, you know, for folks that are out there doing a pricing conversation, tread carefully, um, and, and go together. would be the themes that we all, we all heard here. Um, what other special ops projects uh, have you both seen that you think are worth sharing with the group?
1: Yeah, I think for me, I'll jump on that. Like so I, I talked about the human capital one, right? And I want to talk to a project that I think is, it, you know, it, it's the first test case that I always tell everybody to start with, right? And I think if those if the listeners and the whole purpose of this is provide experiences for you guys to take and tactically go like tomorrow, start working through. The first one is get to know and understand the business, right? What is the what is driving the money? What is driving the business? So I learned this back in my public accounting days, right? And and yeah, I'm I'm giving a highlight to all the listeners that are big four, like what's up? I'm Team E and Y all day. Let's get it. Um, but for me, one thing I loved about Ernst Young and that experience was like the walkthrough and test of controls that I did at Eli Lilly, right? Like it changed the entire course of like my career and walking through like a process and seeing like how Eli Lilly makes money, right? Like this is how Eli Lilly makes money, a billion dollar uh, household name that anybody in the world would know. This is how they make money. So to me, if you're looking for that special ops project to kick off and you want to be a valued advisor, you want to get outside the business, you want to get outside the GL all right, you want to leverage some amazing tools like Planful and other tools, right? Like focus on what is it that drives our business in SaaS. The things that drive our business, it's not necessarily sales, right? It's marketing. Marketing is the tip of the spear in any SaaS business, right? They are the ones that is creating the 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 the, the at the awareness, the lead generation, the opportunities, right? That's how everybody, you know, and. SDRs, I would consider self-development ramps or BDRs or whatever you call them, I would consider like that is the tip of the spear. So for me, the special project that I love to work on and and I would encourage anybody to engage is go work with the marketing groups. Right. Go learn because there's a there's a common marketing analogy. Right. 50% of marketing dollars, people don't even know where it's going, right? It's out there in this abyss and like you're spending the money. You don't know what kind of ROI you're getting with it, what leads are driving it in for it. But getting that tip of the spirit of an organization and working with that group or working with that sales group, if that is not a SaaS-based company, go start there, right? And the first place you can start, right? Don't start with the numbers and Here's what our closed ones were. Here's our lead pipeline. Here's the spillage we got carrying over. Here's, you know, our estimated to close when opportunity comes from our west derision from this person, right? No, 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 no. Go understand the leaders. Go understand the concerns. Go and approach it from like, okay, I'm not going into this with my rifle. I'm going to go into this with my med kit. I'm going to go into this with my bandages and understanding and a different kind of hat on. That way, when I tackle this specific special ops project, maybe the special ops project is not even quantitatively driven. Maybe it's just understanding the leader and building a connection with them. Start there. Build a connection with Rowan, the chief marketing officer, and say, you know what, Rowan? I just want to put 30 minutes of the calendar biweekly, and I just want to talk and learn more about your business. Right. And it, it builds on it. Then once you start learning more about Rowan's business, right, Rowan says, man, I really wish I would have known something more around this uh, marketing strategy that we're doing. Oh, Rowan, like, let me be your support and let's dive a little deeper into that. Organically, you would get the projects from having that dialogue with them. Again, don't go and say, well, in the marketing group, I'm going to be looking at these special loss projects and this is exactly where I'm going to go. Understand the business. Start with building the partnerships and organically come up together in partnership. Well, what those special projects could be or what those special ops projects would be. That would be my foundation. You can start doing that tomorrow. You can start doing that today. That would be the first place I would start.
0: I like it because there's no leader in any business department that doesn't have something that they want done. That's financially, you know, motivating to them or financially uh, like they're like, Oh, I wish I had someone with analytical skills that could go and do this thing. And so naturally you'll get, you know, maybe some tactical stuff that you're like, oh, that's not that fun. I can, you know, I can do that in my sleep. But if you keep doing those little tactical things, keep earning the trust, earning the, uh, earning the respect, then, and you can do that really quickly, right? Leaders start to see that really fast, and then next thing you know, you've got this huge project. And you're like, "Wow, I wasn't expecting that." Um, <laughs> it definitely will happen. Um, so, you know, I really like that mindset, Chris, which is to just um, create the trust, create the bonds. We've talked about it. Create the you know the relationships with with your um, with your peers, and then the work will come. Glenn, what perspectives do you have from, from, you know, you've worked at some bigger organizations and I'm sure that's harder to do, right? Like you can't go at Schwab to the CMO generally and say, Hey, let me put a bi-weekly meeting on your calendar. Well,
2: if (laughs) you're the finance business partner, you, I would say you better do that. Yeah. Um, You know, that's, that's the role of FP&A. I've had throughout my entire career. I've had regular meetings, monthly meetings with each of my business partners who are They could be division heads. They could be in the C-suite, wherever they happen to be. And you have to build out trust. Uh, And and that's, you, you start by getting to know them and getting to know their business and, and letting them build that trust with you by, you could be doing things proactively for them. They could ask you to do stuff and you deliver maybe a little bit more than just what they asked. And that's how you go over and you build that up, Uh, you know, but bringing this back to some of the special projects. I would say other thing. I mean, first of all, I've actually Chris reminded me of a project I did when I was at Visa and I had the chief marketing officer come to me. I was running probability analysis and he said to me, I want to understand when I go out and spend whatever it was, 75, 80 million dollars, who knows, uh, sponsoring the NFL, what kind of impact does that have on our annual revenues? And, you know, that's a Project that is not just about the financials, but it's tracking the data and the consumer behavior and Trending and all of that type of stuff the funny the real funny thing was is I came back to him I said it has absolutely no impact whatsoever And he looked at me. and was like so you're telling me everything we do here in marketing at Visa Which of course is one of the biggest brands in the world has no impact whatsoever and I said well no not in like the next month or two i said that's driven by the economy then but you want to go and look at how visas volumes move is based on how much money people have right the more money they have the more they spend the less money they have the less they spend that's you know it was actually it was pretty intuitive but i showed it looking at various metrics of like gdp growth and comparing against the volumes and all that kind of stuff but i said in the longer term when you start getting out three, four or five years, it's about understanding and seeing what name is in front of you. If, you. if Visa all of a sudden pulled back on their marketing and MasterCard American Express were out there, more and more people as they were thinking about what their next credit card would be, would be thinking about MasterCard and American Express over Visa. And that has long term implications. So understanding stuff like marketing, there's a very big difference between short term results and long term impact and long term is about the brand. Short term is more about the transaction. And sometimes if you're going to be a sponsor of the NFL and spend a ton of money, that's not about a transaction. And you've got to recognize, are you looking at something long term or short term? One other special project I'll throw out there that I've done in multiple companies is around compensation plans for sales teams. Understanding how you want to incentivize people where do you want to grow your business because i think about something i did at charles schwab schwab has a whole bunch of different types of products that they can offer their clients and the uh, financial consultants get paid on bringing in money to schwab but also based on the type of product this is a very common thing in financial services companies so you got to understand what are you trying to drive what is what is you know getting back to once again what is the strategy behind it because certain products are stickier than others certain products are more profitable than others certain products are easier to sell than others right so where do you want to incentivize the the sales team to say look this is a better product for our company this is more about the direction we want to go so we're going to pay you more in that area these might be easier for you to sell it's Table stakes for just being in the business. So we're maybe going to in- incentivize you a little less and where is that balance? Because at the end of the day what you actually have to do is it's not just about the revenue and the profit that the company makes But it's also how much money is that salesperson gonna make and are they going to be have enough incentive to say I want to be doing this I want to keep driving business for this company and are they going to be making enough money? Or are they gonna say hey, you know what you don't pay me enough. I'm gonna go over here to my competitor or something like that. So you really have to look at not just what the financial impacts are what the market impacts are But what's the individual what's the impact on that employee? Because now you're talking about their compensation how they take care of their family So it's really it's kind of a different type of project, but oftentimes HR works with the business on it. FP&A is not always involved but fp can add a huge value just from the analytical approach by asking questions from being involved. So getting into compensation planning, which has a huge impact when it comes to growth, budgeting, forecasting, the whole thing, that's an area that fp should be raising their hand and saying, hey, I wanna be involved in that too.
0: Yeah, in my my experience, Glenn, in revenue operations, the the thing that people miss, and I'm going to call this out when they're looking at compensation plans, is they don't align it back to the territory and quota plan that exists in that rep's territory, right? Because you can design the world's greatest compensation plan with all the great products, um, and you might say, oh, we've got this amazing product, and we're going to give this great incentive, and everyone's going to go and sell it if that rep doesn't have the ability to sell that product in that territory, that just doesn't exist. It doesn't exist to them and they will find it and they will go and and find ways around, you know, and try and find, or they'll just leave because they know that what's being compensated isn't going to help them feed their family, as you said. And a lot of uh, salespeople are on 50, 50 plans where, you know, like that has a huge impact on them. So whenever you're doing any compensation planning process, make sure that you're doing it at a line territory and quota level as well, because if you're not going back far enough in the process, you're going to miss all the key indicators for a sales rep and their ability to hit their commission, which is about their specific territory, their ability to sell into that territory.
2: And a lot of that comes to, Not just region, but country specifics. Where are you? What's the market like in the different things? I mean, a very simple example. If you're trying to sell, you know, cross-country skis and you're in your uh, area is New York City. It's going to be a lot harder to sell that than if you are in Vermont, right? That you've got to recognize the, the regional differences, but sometimes the languages, the laws, the cultures, that's where strategy really comes back into play. And if you've noticed one theme from everything that Rowan you've talked about and Chris has talked about and I've talked about, when you get into projects, it's more about the strategy than it is the financials. The financials Thanks. might go to support the strategy, but it's you've got to have that strategy. You've got to start with that strategy. You've got to believe in that strategy, and that's the strategy that you are solving for. You're not solving for a number. You're solving for a strategy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Gillian, you're right, right? In, in these special ops projects, right? I, and, and I, w- I want to give another special ops project that is outside the business. So, Another special ops project that you FPNA listeners should be having with yourself. Take the business, let's, let's, let's park the business, right? We talked about HR, we talked about sales, we got to compensation, we got to marketing. If you wanna have a special ops project for yourself, right? Do a, a it's the same thing we just talked about. Do a strategy of where do you wanna be in your career, right? I remember doing my own special ops project for myself and I didn't know it was a special ops project when I was making the transition from accounting into FP&A, right? I did the public accounting, I worked at a, you know, I was doing accounting at a high growth startup entrepreneurial software company. And I realized, I said, you know what, I need to take a step back for myself in my career, taking the business out, right? I did a step back in my career and I said, where are my skills, passions, and talents where do I see myself in the next five years? What do I need to be developing and growing? And where do I want to have the most impact, right? A lot of those questions I just said, you take the same approach when you go inside the business, right? But I think it's important for listeners to know you can take these same things and the the, the knowledge that Glenn is dropping and the heat that Rowan is giving and apply that to your professional life and where you want to go, right? I've always looked at that and said, I, I'm... I'm at that point right now where I'm looking at it, okay, Chris, where do I wanna, where is my vision, what is the strategy I wanna do, and where do I wanna have, where do I have the skill gaps, where do I have the passion, uh, where, where I'm motivated, right? And do that same thing for yourself. So if you wanna look at a great special odd project to do that has value that could transcend inside the business, start with you, man. Start with yourself. Start with looking at some of those things. And I I think it's important for me to know that because I think we talk a lot about how ways that we can advocate in the business. But the biggest champion and the biggest cheerleader you're ever going to have in your career is you, not the company. So you got to make sure you're doing those things. And the the, the frameworks, the approaches, the insights that we talked about here can equally, if not even more, be impactful in your own personal career as you think about that. So I wanted to share that because I, I think we, have, we haven't talked that across, the, across that chasm with some of the listeners.
2: So I 100% agree with what Chris said. In fact, it's an exercise that I love doing with, with my staff, but I've done it with myself. Think about where you want to be in 20 years. Title, living, hobbies, married, kids, whatever it happens to be. Imagine a graph right? So your vertical graph, I call the vertical line. I call stuff the, the horizontal one is time. So you go out 20 years and wherever that stuff is all the way up in that upper right-hand corner, that's where, that's where you want to be in 20 years. Now think about where you need to be in 15 years to achieve 20, where do you need to be in 10 to get to 15, where you need to be in five to get to 10, where you need to be in two to get to five. And what do you need to be doing today that will get you on that path to where you want to be going, or where you want to be in two years. And what sometimes it is projects. I mean, there are, I think of people that I've had working for me who have said, you know, I would love to be able to, to live and work at some point in Asia. And so, Oh, you know what, as a manager, that's great to know. So when I have a project around something for Asia Pacific, Hey, I'm going to throw it to that employee, let them get that exposure, that experience, those types of things. And a lot of times you can drive your own projects based on your own passions, but you, it really helps to understand yes. where do you yes. want to be? And, and one, the, one other thing I'll tell you is that if you draw a line from where you are today to that point in 20 in 20 years, it's a diagonal line. You can't always travel along that path the whole thing sometimes you go you go to the right sometimes you go up and it makes it kind of a stepped function every once in a while in your career you do get to take that 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 leap on the line but what's important is also make sure you don't go down or to the left so that you're going in that direction you really want to go.
0: Yeah. I think we've all seen that cartoon of plan versus reality. And, you know, the plan is that straight, straight line. And the reality is, you know, you've got to jump over the rock. You've got to walk through the fire pit. You've got to do all these sorts of things. But, uh, I, I, Chris, Glenn, thank you both for like, uh, bringing that self reflection, that self leadership that folks need to have to actually really progress their careers. I think, a lot of folks rely on their manager to define their career for them. Um, and the more you get up to management levels, the more you realize you're just still trying to figure it out for yourself. Uh, and that your manager, whilst they do have the best intentions and you have to assume positive intent on, on your manager, they're, they're trying to navigate that same journey for themselves. And they're trying to figure out, you know, how do they make themselves look good to their boss and all of that sort of stuff. And so you have to take that self self ownership. It's your responsibility to go and tell your boss what you want from your next twelve months. It's and and if that's not realistic, trust me, they'll tell you. Um, but yeah. it is definitely on you to define your career, your career goals. And and if you do what what Chris and Glenn just described, then you'll find opportunities that you didn't think were existing because people want to help. Like that's the, it's human nature. We all want to help each other. Um, It's very rare that you find someone that actually doesn't want to help you. And if you, and if you don't ask, you don't get. So, you know, for everyone out there, you know, things like what Glenn said, where it's like, oh, you know, I have this interest in traveling the world and working. That's how I moved to London for 10 years and now why I live in the Bay Area and have an Australian accent is because I always expressed an interest to travel uh, to one of my mentors and, and they shipped me around the world and it's great. Um, if you don't do that, if you don't speak up, you might just leave that job and take another job elsewhere and you've, you've missed a, a big opportunity in, in your um, personal development.
1: Yeah, I think so many times, Rowan, and and the whole goal of this conversation is about special projects, right? And we we get some great examples. And I think talking about this one, you always have to be the master, right, of your own career, right? It's great to have advocates, and I've had that along the way. I've also had an experience, man, and I'll share this, like, I had an experience where I was working with my manager, I'm I'm dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's. I'm ready to step into a senior financial analyst role. I'm ready. I did everything that I could. I'm I'm all the performance reviews. Everything was like there. And I'm like, I had complete trust in this person and I'm going towards it. I'm like, yes, yes. I'm, I'm be- almost at the finish line and the goalpost changed, And it was like someone completely outside the business. And it was like, Hey Chris, we know we're working towards a senior FNA role, but we're going to give it to this other person. And I, I, I could go back to that moment. I remember where I was just like, boom. It was just like, man, I did I work. And from that moment, I realized I would never put my skills, passions, talents, development, and growth in the hands of anybody else ever. And if I'm not getting what I want, and if I'm not developing and truly on the trajectory that I am, I'm going to be proactive about it. I'm going to give it time. I'm going to have the conversations. But if I'm not in an opportunity where I'm growing and thriving and, and being challenged and and, and ex- expanding myself, it's not the right opportunity for me. And you got to be willing to have that conversation too. You got to, you know, I I've, I've I've had I've had that conversations with leaders and mentors that I respect now today. And I said, "Look, we come to the understanding that hey Chris, it's probably not the best place for you for your growth." And we 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 agreed upon it, it was like, "Hey, look, it's probably is. Let's let's start working through how we find you know, the best person that's going to be in this position excited about the opportunity that they have now, while I find the opportunity that is best case for me, right? And a lot of people are so scared of that conversation. They run away from it. They don't have it and because it's, it's, it's it. But at the end of the day, man, you have to be the master of your career. You have to take ownership for it. You have to take on this special project for yourself. That way you can know you're giving the best of the business. So-
2: I just wanted to show that insight. Yeah, and, and I 100% agree with everything Chris just said. I mean, he nailed it. I, I always like to say no one's going to fight harder for your career than you will. And so <laughs> don't rely on somebody else. And, you know, that is, I, I was actually the funny thing, Chris, I went through the exact same thing in my career. I had a boss who came to me. And he said, Hey, Glenn, I was a senior financial analyst. He said, Glenn, I'm promoting you to director. And I was like, oh my God, above skipping manager, senior manager. He wrote down my title, wrote down my salary. He gave it to me. I went out, had lunch with a buddy of mine. I'm like, oh my God, I'm getting promoted to director and everything. My buddy went over. He talked to his boss and said, you know, I'd like to get promoted too. They started talking. All of a sudden my boss came back to me and says, yeah, that's gone. Now you lost it. And I'm like, what, how, why would you say that to me if it wasn't a done deal? And then like six months later he comes back and says okay i'm promoting a senior manager i didn't even tell my mom right nothing and he went over and took it away from me again and it was very clear that if i was waiting for somebody to make something happen for me i was going to be waiting a long time and so if i wanted to move up in the organization i either had to say look i'm going to do this i'm going to work hard here and I'm going to see if I could get that, or I'm going to start looking somewhere else because this just might not be the place that's going to get me to where I want to be. And that's okay too, but you got to come to that realization and you got to recognize if you are relying on someone else to do something for you, it's not necessarily their priority because their own career is going to be first before yours. Thanks.
0: Well, I think guys, we could, we could probably, John, Luke, d- yeah. Thanks. Uh, We could probably leave it there today and give some folks back some time to go and think about, you know, how they become the special operations project for themselves. I think Glenn and Chris have just dropped some, you know, some personal experiences there think about that for your own career right now and and where you're at and what you need to go and do to make that next step. And, uh, you know, for those that are interested in doing 20 year planning, I I'm, I'm definitely not that person. Glenn, (laughs) 20 years is like,
1: (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that. I, you know, 20 years from now, who knows? I may be a dinosaur by then. Uh,
0: It's all about where you want to be, right? Yeah, no, I love it. I'm, I'm a five year, five year plan. You know, I'm a, I'm a a three. three. Yeah. Uh, so, So maybe that's just Chris and I like to move fast. So like 10 years to just 10, 20 is too far out. But um, yeah, hey, I I actually may do it just to surprise myself.
2: Well, I would often say it depends on where you are too. If you're coming out of college or you're like five years out of college, 20 years, half of your career, you could do that. If you're getting close to retirement, 20 years is a little silly. (laughs) So uh, It really comes down to where you are in the spectrum
0: right yeah yeah maybe my 20 years my is my golf handicap goal but uh that's uh that's another story so all right gents uh happy friday i hope you stay uh stay cool because it looks like it's going to be hot around the country and uh have a great weekend everyone and uh we'll see you next friday for fpna fridays uh live here on clubhouse thanks everyone